Hey, this is Neil Mackay, your host of a Vietnam podcast. Now, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to share with you about one of my favorite affiliate partners, and that is Fiverr. I've been using Fiverr for years for everything from ordering YouTube thumbnails to keyword research, writing podcast articles, even to Canva designs and thumbnails and more. So whether you're a budding entrepreneur, a podcaster, or anyone in between, Fiverr has got you covered. It really is the go-to platform if you want to find freelancers offering a massive range of services to help you on any project. Maybe you need a stunning new logo or just a short animation, whatever you need, you can find it on Fiverr. What I love the most is how easy Fiverr makes it to connect with talented freelancers from around the world, all at prices that will fit whatever your budget is. Plus, with Fiverr's secure payment system, you can trust that your transactions are safe and secure. No dodgy people you meet on Facebook groups that disappear with your money and never give you what you want. What, that's only happened to me? As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you use the link and at no extra cost to you. As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you click my link and you buy something, all at no extra cost to you. And best of all, you will be directly supporting the making of this podcast that you're listening to for free, but it is not free to make. So why we head over to somewhere that you've probably never been before. It's called the show notes. So whatever app you're listening in, if it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anything at all, head to the show notes, click on my special link, and then you can browse thousands of gigs ready to help you with your next project. And now, let's dive into today's episode. Let's go. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 3 of 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. Thank you to all our regular listeners. And if you are tuning in for the first time, please go back through the many, many episodes um, and listen to some of those guests. You'll find some really interesting people and you'll learn more about their stories and uh, life in Vietnam as well. So check them out. You can also now become a member and a supporter of the podcast. Um, Obviously, it takes a lot of time to produce and it does cost money to produce as well. Um, And it's all been free so far and it will always continue to be free. But if you do want to support the podcast, go into the show notes and click on the Patreon link and you can see the different membership levels and the benefits that you can get if you become a supporter of the podcast. So we'd really appreciate that. My guest today is the executive director of an unbelievable education charity based here in Saigon, which has been operating since 1992, called Saigon Children's Charity. Um, It's an organization that I've worked with closely over the last couple of years and supported through my my job and and personally, and they do unbelievable work. So my guest today is Damien Roberts. 
Hello, hello. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast for a very long time. I never thought I would be interesting enough to qualify for it. And let's see if I make the cut. I was going to say, yeah, it's still to be seen whether that's whether that's the case or not. But um, no, thank you very much for coming on. Obviously, so we've worked together for the last couple of years and Saigon Children do some unbelievable work. So do you want to give us a quick overview of what they do? Yeah, sure. So um, we have been here for the nearly 30 years and basically the mission is to try to help every child stay in education for as long as possible. You know, the longer they stay in, uh, school or if they go on to college university they're going to end up earning more they're going to have a happier life a safer life they're going to live longer uh, and achieve more support their families support their communities uh, and so everything we do is focused on that very simple uh, mission uh, so we work with kids who are from extremely poor backgrounds they're very unlikely to stay in school past 14 15 years of age uh, and we work to keep them in school and get them into college and university because uh, it changes the direction of their life. So we have about 2,000 kids who are receiving scholarships from us, and that is money to pay for their fees, their uniforms, the materials they need, but we also teach them life skills and uh, all of the other things that will make them more equipped for the future. Um, as well as that, we do vocational training. So for those kids that don't want to follow the academic route, uh, we want to be able to give them skills that will help them have good jobs in the future. Uh, we build schools in rural areas so that those uh, small communities that are struggling to get their children to school for more practical reasons, uh, they'll be provided with really high quality school buildings to encourage the kids uh, to spend as much time there as possible. Often the loveliest building in the village, so they want to be there, which is wonderful. Uh, and finally, we do special needs education. Uh, so we help all kinds of educational centres around Vietnam who are providing facilities for kids with a full range of physical and mental disabilities. And we've recently majored on um, autism and developmental delay. Uh, it's something where there's a lot of very skilled people around Vietnam, professors, academics, researchers, teachers, uh, government policymakers. But what we found is that it's not yet fully joined up. Uh, and so we have taken the role of coordinating all of these disparate parties, bring them together under one umbrella so that we can kind of move the needle uh, for these kids. There's about maybe a million people in Vietnam directly uh, affected by the condition, and we just want to really make a, an impact on their lives. Um, so that's where we've been spending most of my time recently, uh, is bringing that together. But it's a lot of fun, and uh, it's not something that I have to do alone. I've got a big team of uh, very hardworking people. I'm the only uh, English person working for the charity. It is a British charity, originally registered by... I thought a... that was like a quota they had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have to have one guy who's willing to go and stand up at the front and talk incessantly. Uh, so I probably know less than almost every member of my staff. Uh, in fact, I think that's pretty much nailed on. Uh, but I am happier to talk than they are. They they prefer to to you know kind of be professional and get the job done, whereas I'm willing to kind of talk rubbish, uh, you know, for a living, which is which is good. So anyway, a bit like you, really. It's uh, it's a perfect job. <laughs> to bring it back to a serious topic, I do want to touch on that because you you guys started off um, about maybe just over a year ago, if I'm right, with the campaign to bring awareness about autism in Vietnam which as someone who is a teacher and has been teaching here, I think that's a really important issue. Am I right in saying, I'm sure I heard somewhere that in Vietnam there, there isn't or there wasn't a word for autism? 
Yeah, that's right. So when the uh, charity started bringing over people, specialists from the the UK NHS National Health Service uh, to train teachers and train therapists here in, in Vietnam, obviously everything has to go through the local authorities. And we went and spoke to the authorities and said, this is what we're here to do. And they were very receptive. They said, it's wonderful knowledge transfer. You know, all of our people want to learn. We want to, you know, develop in that regard. But actually, what are you talking about? We don't really have a word for that. And so there was no direct translation for autism. Uh, And eventually, after, you know, sort of a few uh, back and forth meetings over maybe a year or two, they said, okay, we've we've got a word for it, which I will mangle in Vietnamese, tu ki which is T-U-K-Y. And it basically used to mean kind of loneliness, depression, but they kind of expanded the meaning to encapsulate autism. But at least, you know, now it was something that they had, uh, you know, the ability to kind of talk about and to address. And so over time, that's kind of developed from we don't have a word for it to we do have a word for it, but we don't think we have any people here with autism. Uh, to, I think, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, the authorities here in, in Ho Chi Minh City, they said, yeah, we've we've assessed a lot of kids and we think there's probably 200,000 uh, people in the city that will, you know, be on the autistic spectrum. And that's absolutely in line with the national figures around the world. It's typically 1% to 2%, depending on how you define it and how you assess it. Vietnam is always unlikely to be dramatically different. And indeed, uh, it seems that it's not. So, as you know, Vietnam is one of those places, it's incredible, it's so fast moving that as soon as they put their mind to something, to addressing something, to changing something, they can do it so quickly, so effectively and mobilise, you know, the, the teams, the authorities, the people, the specialists around the entire country. Uh, and that's kind of what they've done to support us. So, I mean, you know, there's always lots of bureaucracy. There's always a different kind of culture that you have to adopt and adapt to. Uh, when you're doing these things. But in terms of the willingness to to change things and in terms of the willingness to make life better for what is potentially one, one and a half million uh, people with autism and probably another four or five million uh, directly affected because they're part uh, families of kids with autism or adults with autism. We've, we've just been bowled over by the enthusiasm and the support that we found here. So uh, yeah, it's gone from absolutely nothing to you know, a national movement in a very short period of time. And that, for me, that typifies Vietnam. Yeah, that's incredible to go in that short time from we don't have any people with this this new condition that we've just named to then being like, we're going to get fully behind this. So I, I, obviously then this is an obvious statement, but it was massively underdiagnosed then. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, the same is true. The same is true of pretty much every country. So you know, I grew up in the UK, specifically, I should say, in England, as in a kind of confessional sense. Um, and I have a, a younger brother who who has what used to be called Asperger's syndrome. It's now kind of level one autism. It means that, you know, he basically is a weirdo, uh, but he's adorable. Uh, and he doesn't have any uh, challenges around his kind of development. But in terms of his, his kind of interpersonal communication, uh, he's even more awkward than me. And that's fairly awkward. Um, and that wasn't something that was diagnosed when he was at school. It was something that he didn't receive extra support for. And eventually we kind of realized in his later school years that, you know, he wasn't just weird. It was a specific thing. Uh, and so he got additional support and, you know, he's gone on to be extremely successful and earning 
small fortune in IT, government IT. Uh, so really, you know, what is kind of seen as a intellectual disability still here in Vietnam and in other places, actually, when you have the right intervention and the right support, doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a disability as much as just a completely different type of brain, a different way of thinking, a different approach to the world. So what is that intervention then? So for many kids, it's just having more time to get things done because the whole approach is slightly different. Um, I think what's also important for a lot of kids is that they can be quite overstimulated, overwhelmed, too much information, too loud, finding kind of direct face-to-face contact, challenging. So it's just modifying behaviours in order to give these kids the opportunity to excel. You know, obviously, autism spectrum disorder, as it's known, ranges from kind of minor uh, issues and challenges around communication and interaction to very severe Uh, problems with development and with the ability to communicate. And, you know, many uh, children and people with autism will remain nonverbal. And for those kids, it's less about, okay, how can we fully include you in in mainstream education and mainstream life? But it's more about how can we maximise your happiness? How can we maximise the quality of the life you're leading? And for some of the kids that we have in in therapy here in Ho Chi Minh City, we're helping them to communicate. So it may be that they're simply using a a yes, no uh, board and they will point or they will use cards in order to communicate. Uh, And it's teaching the parents how to interact effectively with their kids so that they will remain calm and they will understand what's being asked of them and they will understand that they need to give an answer in order to kind of steer what happens next. And it's simple stuff, but when it's not something you've ever encountered before, which is you know, probably true of most people. It's certainly true of most people here in in Vietnam. Um, It's a challenge. But actually, once you start on that journey, it can be a very short journey. I mean, some of our kids that have been receiving one-to-one therapy at our um, little school in District 4 here in Saigon, within six or seven weeks, in some cases, the children that are coming in, they're, they're young, between 18 months and three years, typically, they can learn to calm themselves, self regulate, and communicate basically in that period of time. I mean, we will stay supporting them for longer if that's what's required. But I think just from the the first 30 kids that we we took in last year to work with them and their parents, I think seven of them have uh, spoken their first words, which in many cases wasn't expected by the, the parents. And I think one of the most important things is kind of making sure that the expectations of the parents or the caregivers, the neighbours, the community, whoever, is right. Uh, and for some kids, you know, they they will be more limited in that they may not live independently in their life. And some kids will go on to be, you know, perhaps tremendously successful because they have excellent brains and they just struggle with the communication. Uh, and so it's helping. We have to help the parents assess, you know, what's possible for your child and how do we maximize what is possible for your child? Um, and it's a... Uh, it's a really rewarding thing because the the parents, you know, they're dealing with a huge amount of stress having a child which, you know, is not like their other children, not like their neighbours' children, their cousins or whatever. Uh, and they feel like, the parents often feel like they're doing something wrong. Or even if you have a more slightly traditional mindset that you're being punished. Um, and there's a certain amount of shame that's felt by some parents, which 
we work quickly to eliminate because, you know, this is not something that you cause. This is something that happens. It's something that you deal with. Um, and what's been wonderful is to see the kind of the joy of parents realizing, okay, so this is fine. My kid is different, but my kids can still have a good life and that I can actually do something. And for a lot of parents, they feel incredibly guilty because they can't do anything to support their kid. And then you give them a few simple uh, pointers on how to interact with them. And then suddenly it, it changes life. It gives them kind of hope for the future. And that can happen in a matter of hours or weeks, which is a pretty special gift. Yeah, I was going to say about parents, because obviously, so you have the child on one end and then you've got the government organisations, you say, that are all getting behind it. And I was going to ask, what is the reaction from the parents? Because I know all parents are very proud. Um, and I think my experience in Vietnam, they're particularly proud of their children and the expectations here are so high in terms of the amount of work and study that a child has to do and the expectations of what that child should become. Um, so do you, is that then a big challenge to, like you kind of explained, to then go through that process with them? Yeah, it can be. I mean, you know, obviously if a child is is kind of... Uh, has severe challenges with communicating and that might be a, a lifelong limiting factor then obviously that's a difficult conversation uh, for our therapist to have with a parent but better to be you know forewarned forearmed prepared uh, and working to kind of mitigate and deal with that situation um, what has been incredibly uh, fascinating for me is that as you say education is extraordinarily important uh, across Asia but you know certainly here in Vietnam and I think a lot of parents will expect that their children will grow up, get a decent education, get a good job and support them and support, you know, the extended family. It's a very traditional model here. Um, and what's been really nice to see is that when I say to parents or our therapists say to parents, actually, you know, there's a whole bunch of, of people with autism, you know, self-identify as autistic who have professional jobs, careers, you know, earning good money. And then suddenly the parents are kind of going, oh, right, I hadn't really thought that that was possible. And, you know, the parents here are extremely caring. And, and you know, when they recognize that their child has got, you know, some kind of developmental difference, they think, okay, we will protect this child. We will look after this child. We will keep them at home. We will care for them. We will keep them safe. We will love them. Uh, and basically making sure that that kid has a, a kind of a, a stable, secure life. And that's wonderful. But actually, what that can then lead to is that kid stays at home. It doesn't socialize. It doesn't, you know, interact with lots of other people. It has a, an extended family around it and is looked after. But then, unfortunately, you know, get to a stage where the parents are no longer able to care for the child or perhaps they die. And then suddenly you have a, a, ch a child who had the possibility to develop, who's become an adult with autism, who's never been socialised, and then suddenly they have to go into a specialist institution where they, for want of a better word, almost warehoused. I mean, they're cared for and they're fed and they're looked after and their basic needs are met, but there's no stimulation, there's no development, there's no opportunity to kind of build a different or better life in, in many cases. Um, and so by giving those parents the, the vision that Actually, you know, for many of these kids, I don't know the percentages, but a significant, you know, chunk of these children can actually go on to live independently, to have a job, to have relationships, to have friends, to have hobbies and a full and rewarding life. And, and, and in some ways, the fact that they will 
potentially, quite possibly, be able to contribute to their household income and to care for their parents is something that makes an awful lot of parents feel very motivated to keep coming along to the therapy sessions and getting their kids to, to develop the skills they need to do that. Now, to, to, you, to you and to maybe many of our listeners, this would probably be a really obvious and maybe even a stupid question. But for some people who maybe don't understand Vietnam or they don't understand it as much, why is there a need for Saigon Children's Charity? Like, what are the greatest barriers for children getting education here? Sure. I mean, when we were set up back in the early 90s, the, the number one um, barrier to education was poverty. Of course, you know, a family who have got a couple of children in school, mum and dad are both working. Um, when that child gets to an age where they can contribute, whether it's caring for younger siblings or caring for an older relative or working in the fields, then every single day you send them to school, not only does it cost you the money for their, their lunch or their bus ride to school or whatever, it's also costing you the contribution they would make to the household, whether it's in terms of harvesting the rice or whether it's in terms of working on a, on a construction site and earning money. And every single day that that kid is in education, that family is losing, losing money, losing stability. Um, and so it's really understandable that with the level of poverty that many people are facing, they will take their children out of school in order to contribute to the household so that they can just keep living, looking after each other and, and buying medicine, and buying food and, and clean water. So that was always the biggest barrier. And, and for many people, that's still a, a huge barrier. There's a significant um, minority of people still living in what to us as kind of privileged Westerners, we would see as abject poverty. And, and certainly here, you know, to be considered below the poverty line in Vietnam is, is a pretty uh, low bar. And it, it's for people who have no secure income and they cannot guarantee that they're you know, home is going to stay their home. They cannot guarantee that they will have enough food for the family every day. They cannot afford to buy the medicines that they may need. Uh, so that was always the biggest barrier. It's still a big barrier. Um, but as Vietnam is is developing and, and those areas of deprivation are becoming more focused on, on you know, the uh, challenging rural areas, the highlands and the kind of distant areas where development is is slower to spread. Um, we continue to work with those communities because every child, you know, just because they're born into poverty, they still deserve the opportunity to be happy. Uh, but also there are other barriers. As I said, we build rural schools because in some areas there are no schools within, you know, seven, 10, even 15 kilometers. So kids have to walk a long way or cycle a long way. And in reality, more often than not, won't keep going to school because it's physically uh, too challenging. It takes too long and it takes too much away from, from the household. Um, disability is, is something which is universally a barrier to education, whether it's a, a physical or a mental um, disability. It has a massive impact. And of course, in a country, albeit one that's rapidly developing, it's difficult to provide the education for every single child uh, with you know extremely diverse needs. So we're kind of filling all the gaps and uh, we're trying to make sure that whatever those barriers are, we're, we're doing something to, to combat them. So I would say poverty is still the big one. Um, it's improving and I think, you know, in probably another 15, 20 years, it will be a much better situation for many families as a kind of the, the wealth that we see um, focused in some of the city areas, you know, that spreads even further. But 
you know, you can be from any country in the world and there's still huge amounts of deprivation. I, you know, I'm from England, which, okay, admittedly is not as impoverished and, and undeveloped as Scotland. Um, but, <laughs> but it does have, you know, it's areas where there are children who are struggling to eat. Even this week, you know, we're hearing crazy stories of uh, English government is not particularly keen to feed children. Uh, and so there's always going to be gaps. There's always going to be shortages. There's always going to be kids suffering. Um, and as long as there are, it's wonderful to have organisations and people around who care about it and are directly doing something. And I had a conversation with a, a Vietnamese government minister a while back, and he said very kindly and positively, you know, we hope that one day with Vietnam's rapid development, we will no longer need to have the charities uh, here in Vietnam because we'll make sure that we provided for everybody. And that's a wonderful aspiration. But I said, I think there's about 500 uh, education charities, uh, sorry, children's charities in Vietnam, about 500 children's charities in Vietnam. Uh, and I know that in England, not Scotland, just England, there's around 55,000 children's charities. Um, so I think, you know, the charities change over time. They, they become more specialised, more focused, more expert in the areas uh, in which they work. And I, I suspect that will be the journey for Saigon children over the next 20, 30 years. And talking about um, the concentration of wealth, so what that's a massive challenge, right? Because you have the concentration of wealth in the cities, so it's not getting to the rural areas, right? And how long do you think that's going to take? Because I just see in Vietnam, especially Saigon, it's, the cities just keep developing, but I don't see it spreading out so much. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. It's, um, you know, somebody once described Vietnam to me as uh, like, you know, with Hanoi in the far north and Ho Chi Minh City in the far south, as um, <clears throat> two rice baskets on the end of a long pole. Uh, and I think that, that that's still true now, and that's a relatively old uh, expression. I think this is something which is universal. I mean, urbanisation is, is people moving from the country into the cities for economic opportunity. We're seeing a lot of that here, and the cities will continue to grow. Um, I think one thing that will help is that all those people travelling in from the rural areas, most of them are, are keeping family in the rural areas. So they're, they're sending money to their family, they're building houses in those areas. And of course, as they support their family, then the family goes and supports the community. And so the community develops in isolation from the city because there's that, that financial economic link. And actually, that's kind of the model that underpins Saigon Children's Charity in that we know if we can take a child who's, you know, maybe 13 years old, can read and write, maybe mum and dad can't read and write. And so the parents think, great, you know, the kid is, you know, our daughter is doing well, let's, let's you know, get her a job or, you know, use, use her uh, labour at home so that we can have more food. We know if that kid can stay in school and then come into, say, the city and go to university, okay, it might be another five years before that child is contributing directly to the family. But if the family can spare that time and they can kind of see it as an investment in that child's future and their own future, then when that child leaves university and gets a job, they'll be earning more instantly. And we know that they'll be earning a lot more within a few years because they'll have career progression. They won't just be doing a job, they'll be doing a career. And we know that all of these kids that, you know, and we've got several hundred at university in, in Ho Chi Minh City, you know, they're sending money home. They work hard, they study hard, they send money home. And it's such a 
cause of pride to them when they develop in their careers and they can just totally change the lives of their families, their extended families, and ultimately their villages. Uh, and some of our kids have gone on to do amazing jobs. I mean, we have uh, one uh, woman who was on a scholarship program with us for probably 10 years, went to university, studied finance, she got a job in banking. She's now a big regional boss for one of the big multinational banks. She's living in Malaysia, I, you know, probably earning 10 times uh, what, you know, you're earning, mm-hmm. um, probably 20 times what I'm earning. Um, and she's transformed life for her entire uh, community. And so that's something that I think will continue. Mm. Now, that really gives me goosebumps. It's inspirational. Where does most of your funding come from? Um, it used to be, as you would imagine, uh, from the UK, where we were set up and we had uh, uh, the bulk of our supporters and then from other European uh, nations, especially those that have got historic links to Vietnam, such as France. Um, these days, um, I'd say the vast majority of our money comes from Asia, and most of that money comes from Singapore. Um, so Singapore is, for those who don't know, one of the, the 10 nations in ASEAN, the, the Southeast Asian uh, bloc. Uh, it's extremely developed and uh, very rich and extremely generous. And so they are really keen to support the other uh, countries in this part of the world and to ensure their rapid development and contribute however they can. So for us, Singapore... Uh, I know other charities also see a lot of money coming from Japan and Korea who are big, big investors in Vietnam and have been here, you know, as partners to Vietnam for many, many years. But for us, uh, yeah, I think we probably get 20% of our money from from Singapore. And most of our money, no matter which country it comes from, is coming from relatively large institutions at the moment. So it's banks, investment funds, that kind of thing. So um we are always, you know, trying to, to find people who are keen to, to work in, in Vietnam and to invest in Vietnam and to benefit from the growth of Vietnam. Uh, and we say, well, while you're here, you need to be doing something good just for Vietnam. Uh, and so, you know, always happy to twist their arm. And actually, very few people need their arm twisting. If you, if you give them an opportunity to give, a lot of people are just happy to put their hand in their pocket, especially when they see, you know, the, the kids that are being supported. Because a few dollars... For, you know, from, from Singapore, it can make a huge difference uh, in the life of a child here in Vietnam. Yeah. No, I would imagine as well that as Vietnam is developing and, you know, and, and you'll know from being in Saigon, it's uh, really common to watch a, a Bentley go down the street followed by a Porsche, followed by a Maybach, followed by a Mercedes-Benz. Um, and, and you can see a lot of wealth in Saigon. Um, so has that changed your funding model? Or are you starting to get more funding from Vietnamese people? Or is that a target to, to be more self-sufficient within Vietnam? Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, I live out in, in District 7, which is South Ho Chi Minh City. And uh, although I just live in, in an apartment and the apartment block is, is majority Vietnamese or kind of, you know, fairly solidly middle class, um, from uh, the building, you can see all the villas surrounding uh, the area. And I naively, when I moved out to the area, thought, hey, it would be lovely to have a garden and to kind of have a, you know, a proper little patch that I could call my own. 
So I was like, I wonder how much those villas cost. And and they started at one million US dollars. So I was like, okay, so that's about fifty nine years savings, uh, and I probably could get the deposit together. Um, so you're right. There's a there's a huge amount of wealth uh, here in Vietnam, and my experience is that Vietnam uh, Vietnamese people are extremely generous and. Uh, you know, always looking to support not just their families, their neighbors, their communities. Um, it's still a relatively new part of the culture to give to organized charities. So it's always been traditional to support those around you and in your extended network. Very common to give at uh, important times of the year, like Tet, for example, the, the Vietnamese New Year. Um, and the other thing is to give to the local um, center for either people with disabilities or to the local temple and allow them to give the money out. And it's kind of relatively uh, new territory for many Vietnamese to give to charities, especially foreign charities. Um, but it's something that's becoming a lot more common. I mean, there was recently floods in the central region and there was a phenomenal amount of money raised by a Vietnamese celebrity. I can't remember the numbers, but it was it was millions of dollars in hours on Facebook so yeah, there's no shortage of people who are kind and generous here, and that is absolutely a, a big focus for us. Uh, but it's an interesting point you make about, you know, you see a, a Lamborghini, a Maserati, whatever. Um, I was in District 1, so before I, I worked for the charity, I was already living and working here in, in Saigon. And I was in the centre and right by Bentan Market, which is a famous tourist market in the centre, I saw a Lamborghini. And I was like, wow, that's the first Lamborghini I, I've seen here in, in Vietnam. And uh, I've been living in Malaysia before, which is, you know, kind of probably 15 years ahead in, in terms of its development. So I'd seen quite a few Ferraris and Lamborghinis there as, you know, people always flashing their cars around. But I hadn't seen one here in Vietnam. So I was like, well, that's a real marker. I mean, that's a, probably a million dollar car here in, in Vietnam with the extra taxes you have to pay. Uh, and what I hadn't realized is that probably about 50 meters away uh, from that Lamborghini, there's a little alleyway which I'd driven past the end of, never noticed. And when I started working for, for Saigon Children, one of our social workers said, oh, well, let me take you out to meet, you know, some of the, the kids that we're supporting here in the city. And I kind of thought, oh, right, interesting. And uh, we went and down this little alleyway, just where I'd seen the Lamborghini only a few months before, um, just a tiny little house built out of uh, corrugated iron and um, probably two meters by two meters and about three meters tall. And um, halfway up the building, this little structure, there was kind of a platform built, and that was where the grandparents slept and the mother and the daughter slept lower down, close to the floor. And it was just temporary structure in, a, in an alleyway, and the, the grandmother would go and sell um, a bowl of bananas to motorists as they kind of drove past the alleyway and I've been over this bridge you know Carmet Bridge it's known as hundreds of times and just totally unaware of it so actually there's still that you know absolute wealth and absolute poverty cheek by jowl I mean I naively I had kind of missed it I'd been living and working you know in the city and working in District 1 spending a lot of time there and I just hadn't noticed and uh, I think that's the case for a lot of people. You kind of, you, you're busy, you race around, you're, you're getting on with your day, you're seeing your friends, you're doing your job. And you don't really give a lot of thought to, you know, the, the person selling fruit or the person that's offering to, to polish your shoes. 
But actually, these are all people who are usually living in, in small family groups with very little income and supporting each other. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's worth sometimes just stopping and looking at things differently because um, certainly for me, I, I kind of leading a, a relatively privileged life and I just hadn't really stopped to look around and see those things. Uh, and now that I'm, you know, a bleeding heart do-gooder working for a charity, I, I see this a lot. And um, it's, yeah, it's kind of changed how I view the world and how I view my role in it. Yeah, it's the, the disparity here is stark, isn't it? And which is different to, to being back home. And, and, and people who don't live here might think I'm joking, but I mean, you literally will see a Maybach, a Lamborghini, a Ferrari, like regularly go by. But then at the same time, you see someone selling lottery tickets, scraping to get by. And it, it's hard to, and then we're somewhere in the middle there, like we're not driving. <laughs> people think all oh, expats are rich, but we're not poor but will not uh driving me but i you rarely see an expat in a nice car right yeah i mean absolutely i um, saw an expat like a, an older white guy driving a, a Porsche last week and i had to double take so i was like oh that's that's unusual right yeah i think you know maybe if you go back 20 years a lot of the wealth was or the, the kind of obvious wealth the kind of prevalent wealth was in the hands of foreigners investors business people who had come to Vietnam and kind of, um, you know, to do business and to invest and to kind of, um, you know, work uh, here in the country. And then that has been totally overwhelmed with the sheer volume of, of people from Vietnam who are benefiting from that, which is, you know, it's a wonderful thing. Um, but it is sometimes it's quite shocking uh, when you see, when you see, like I say, a, a million dollar car and, you know, a $5 million uh, villa. Uh, and then outside, you've got the guy who's probably earning one or $2 a day, and he may be supporting a small family on that. So yeah, it's it's not something which is unique to Vietnam. No, um, it's every country is the same, right? Like, there's, there's no difference. It's just, I think it's, it's starker here because the bottom is so low, unfortunately. Yeah. I think um, one thing that's interesting is that, you know, expats or foreigners immigrants, whatever you want to call us. I, I prefer foreigners. I, I've never been called a foreigner until I moved to, to Vietnam. And it, it kind of made me go, oh, yeah, of course, I am a foreigner. I've never thought about that. That's Western pri- yeah, the, privilege it, for it's you. It's a common term that people use. And, and, you know, in the UK, a foreigner is, if you call someone a foreigner, it's almost like a negative term, right? And it's just developed that way. So the first couple of times when, when I got called like a foreigner, I was kind of like, oh, but it's not meant to be rude or disrespectful. It's just it's just a statement of fact, right? Yeah, that's it. And I think, you know, a lot of us foreigners here, we're here because we choose to be here. And most of us, I think, probably love being here. And that's why we're still here. Um, but yeah, even even those of us who aren't particularly wealthy, who couldn't, you know, aspire anytime soon to a Porsche, we are still relatively wealthy because we don't have the level of insecurity that, that the people you know, have in terms of where do I live and, and what do I eat and, and what's the future holding for me? So, yeah, it, it's an interesting one. I Moving from a, a relatively uh, wealthy country like England to come to a country like Vietnam, it's really changes your, your kind of position, uh, or at least for me, it changed my position in my mind about where I am in the world. Uh, I grew up in a fairly poor family. I lived in a 
the outside area of London known as the Stockbroker Belt. Uh, for anyone who knows it, it's a, a town called Guildford in a county called Surrey, which for anybody from the UK, you hear Surrey and you go, oh, Surrey, very nice, kind of a, a majestic, royal-sounding uh, county full of millionaires. But we were a poor family uh, living in in a council house, kind of uh, government-supplied uh, housing, uh, my dad has always been working in the, the building trade. My mum didn't work. I'm the eldest of five kids. My parents were teenagers. Uh, when they had me, they they both left school early. So I grew up thinking, I'm not privileged. You know, I'm kind of the, the lower end of society in terms of wealth and privilege and class and all that. And that was just the norm. Uh, and then I moved to Asia and you suddenly realise, wow, I was way off. You know, I was born with a British passport speaking the English language, that in itself is a a massive privilege. It it changes your entire view of the world because you can, you know, with a relatively modest amount of money that you've, in my case, I got it from working, you know, on on building sites with my dad and then occasionally working in supermarkets as well. You can get enough money to get a flight overseas. You've got a passport that will let you go there and you speak a language, which will mean that you can almost certainly interact with the majority of people when you get there. And for people growing up in Vietnam, even now, uh, you have a passport which people will still kind of eye slightly suspiciously at the borders. And you speak a language which, as far as I'm concerned, is one of the most difficult languages, albeit beautiful, uh, difficult languages in the world. And for me, coming to, to Vietnam, it, it really kind of made me realise, wow, you know, what I considered as, as, as poor actually was a really lucky way to be born. Mm. Uh, and so it's nice now to be working uh, for a charity, which is trying to give all the kids we work with the opportunity to have aspirations and hope for the future. I'm talking about the UK, and, and I guess this applies to the US in many countries as well, as you know, there's a certain section of society that are normally on one end of the political spectrum where they are against foreign aid or supporting other countries. So let's play like devil's advocate. Why, why should other countries invest in Vietnam? Why should they give foreign aid to help with education or help educate Vietnam's children when there are people here who drive these cars and live in these villas. Why wouldn't you help someone if you can? That, for me, is a kind of overriding principle. If you're in a position, you may not be rich, whether you're a country or a person or a company, you may not be so comfortable that you will never have to worry about money again. But if you can help someone, why wouldn't you help them? Um, It feels almost like a, a duty to help others who are in a less fortunate position to yourself. And I think that applies at the the country level as much as it applies at the individual level. Um, If you wanted to be, you know, cynical and, you know, kind of calculating about it, and I should probably state that I used to work for the British government, the Foreign Office and the Department for International Trade across Southeast Asia and in London. So I probably had a little bit of cynicism built into me. Uh, If you give support, it pays an incredible dividend. Um, And, you know, you can look at this at the individual level. I know people who were migrants from Vietnam and they they traveled with their families and they grew up in the UK and they went to through the school system and they would have been, you know, essentially costing at that time the UK government money 
and resources. Uh, and there might have been a section of the society that went, hey, we shouldn't have foreigners coming over here and, and using up our, our resources and, and taking up money that should be focused on people already here in the UK. Uh, and now, in most cases, these people that I know personally that, that studied and learned and, and, and grew up in the UK, um, <clears throat> whether they consider themselves Vietnamese or British Vietnamese, they have such a love and passion and appreciation towards the UK that they're basically the best ambassadors for the country you should ever wish for. Um, you know, in all their cases, they ended up paying far more into the system than they ever took out. But even if they hadn't, even if they hadn't, you know, to know that you've given people shelter and hope and security and knowing that those people will always be so happy as a result of the kindness that you showed them. Um, that's a big enough reward in itself, even if you, you step away from all the economic arguments, which actually are, are pretty compelling for offering support to people and to nations. So I would say, you know, short answer, just help people. Whether you're a person, whether you're a country, just help people. Make their lives better. It might pay off. You might get some sort of return on your investment or you might just be a better person, a better country because of it. Beautiful answer. I like it. Well, I have one more question regarding the, the, this kind of topic, and then we'll, we'll move on. One of the things I found um, fascinating, and again, talking about people's perceptions from back home, let's put the scenario so a factory opens up in a rural area, and there's going to be a headline in the UK saying, these workers are making one pound an hour, but that's actually life-changing, right? So how, what, how, do you, how do you bridge that disconnect from, you know, the sensationalism of headlines in countries like the UK or the US when the reality on the ground is this is a fair wage in the country where you can buy lunch for less than a dollar, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, Unless you're fortunate enough that you've traveled around lots of different places, different parts of the world to actually see it for yourself and feel it for yourself, you're right. You see some of the numbers and you think, my goodness, you know, that's shocking. That's, that's exploitative. It's, it's not fair. It's not right. Um, and it's always good to feel, you know, maybe there's an injustice being done. I need to look at that. Can I help change things? That's great. Um, but I think, you know, at the same time, probably good advice for life. Always ignore headlines wherever you see them. I mean, headlines are usually just rubbish, aren't they? I mean, even good journalists don't get to write their own headlines. Um, and, you know, so there's a whole load of absolute nonsense that is written in great big letters. And actually, when you dive into the detail, it's a totally different situation. But unfortunately, most people don't have the time or the inclination to dive into the detail. Um, which is why, you know, it's so good that there are those that do that and they try to sum it all up and then, you know, report back to the rest of the world what the situation actually is. Although, unfortunately, those poor buggers don't get to write their own headlines either. So it, it can be a, a challenge. But I think, you know, if you see something that shocks you, look into it, see if you can change it, see if you can make it better. But you have to understand the local context. And, you know, ours is a British charity, but I'm the only British person there. There's one other foreigner. And then there's 38 Vietnamese people uh, working for the team. And I say, you know, really, they are the people that get everything done, who make the impact, who change lives. And the reason 
we are almost exclusively Vietnamese is that you have to understand the local context. You have to understand the local culture. You have to understand the local expectations. Um, because if you come in with your kind of foreign savior type approach, then, I mean, it's lovely that you're trying and then you should be, you know, applauded for caring and getting involved. Uh, but you'll end up wasting your own time and, and other people's time because you're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. And um, you need to understand a country. You need to understand the people before you can really help them. Um, so that's that's for us the most important thing is, you know, we get close to the communities we look after, the families that we're supporting. Because if you don't understand what they're going through, then you can't really offer them the best support. And you know, many of our staff are from, you know, very modest um, backgrounds themselves. Some of our staff were previously um, recipients of support from the charity. So they they grew up in our scholarship program and then they've, they've gone on to get jobs and they've come to work for us because they feel passionately about giving back. Uh, and I think that's kind of the most powerful force in the world is that is that desire to develop yourself and then to give back. Uh, because it comes with a huge amount of understanding and, and, and implicit knowledge, which you can't teach. Another perception, I guess, would be that there's a lot of child labour involved as well. Is that, is that a challenge here? Is that a problem here? And, and how does Saigon Children deal with that? Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, yes, there is some child labour, but then I remember being taken out of school at 11, 12, so that I could, you know, get into the van with my dad and drive four hours to a, you know, wintry construction site, partly so I could help him stay awake for the journey and partly so I could help carry his tools. I mean, is that child exploitation? I guess if you asked some international bodies, they'd say, yes, absolutely. Um, so I don't know. It's difficult. Where do you draw the line between kids contributing to household income kids contributing to the food on the table because they're working in the fields and kids who are being exploited. And I think it's usually the intent behind it. And, and in the vast majority of cases that I've witnessed here in Vietnam, this is not about evil people rounding up kids and enslaving them to, to do you know, dangerous or unrewarding work for very little money. It's usually about necessity. It's usually about families saying we have to all chip in or we're not going to eat or we're not going to be able to pay the bills. We're not going to be able to have a home. We're not going to be able to keep one child in education. Um, so I think for me, it's less about pointing the finger at most of these cases. It's more about what is the root problem and how can we help challenge that? Because, you know, our tagline is removing barriers to education. And as I said, poverty is a big one. And it's poverty that <clears throat> means that families need their kids to contribute, whether in food or, or, or money to the household. So that's what we try to deal with. Um, of course, I'm sure there are terrible cases of, of exploitation. Um, but actually, when you have more children receiving an education for longer then they are far less at risk of any form of exploitation or abuse or trafficking or all of the terrible things that can and do happen. Um, so for us at Saigon Children's Charity, we're all about reducing those risks. Um, we have worked with literally tens of thousands of children a year, and we can 
be pretty certain that the risk to those children of, of being put into a situation where they are exploited and trafficked and abused is significantly reduced because their awareness, their knowledge, their education is so much higher and it decreases their vulnerability. So, you know, these are really important, really challenging issues. Um, but it's always, again, careful and, and careful thinking and it's thinking about what exactly is causing this without pointing the finger straight away. One story I have was that children basically, and I don't like 14, 15 year olds were providing false documents to say they were an adult because they wanted to work in a factory. You know, so they're not even being exploited because they want the short term income, but then they're missing out on their education, which is the long term income. And is that's that's something that you guys help with and step in, right? Yeah, I mean that's probably far more common than the kind of you know sinister forces uh, trying to to drum up you know child armies. I think people yeah. think all these big name brands are here and they've got children sewing away in factories, and and the reality is different, right? Yeah, the reality is different. I think um, you know all of the big brands operate here. They all have very thorough auditing of their their factories and their production lines and and broadly speaking you know from my limited understanding they they do really well uh in making sure that their workers are you know appropriate safe and and suitably um paid where it can be a little bit of a grayer area is when you know the factories the smaller factories they're subcontracting out especially garment manufacturing sewing that kind of thing out to individual households. So the, the person will have a sewing machine at home and they will, you know, sew garments or shoes and then they will send those into the factory. And that's kind of one of the big models here. You know, how do you audit every single household? How do you check that it's only mom or dad or big sister who's doing the sewing and not the, you know, 14-year-old boy who also lives in the house? And, that, you know, in practice, that's very difficult. Is it unethical for the family to choose to have that child contribute in that way? I, I don't think I'm personally in a position to say. Um, you're right. Many young people will want to leave education in order to get a job. And sometimes it's just because they want to buy their own smartphone. I mean, you know, they come from a poor family, but they still know what is out there and what's possible. And whether it's that they want to buy a motorbike, or whether it's that they want to contribute to their household so that everyone's got enough money to eat, or whether it's because they want to be able to buy that heart medicine, which is for grand, but is, is, is you know, one step beyond what's provided by the state. You know, whatever their motivations, it does happen. It's always happened. It happens around the world. What we do with our social workers and our caseworkers at Saigon Children's Charities, we sit down with the kids and we sit down with the parents and we say, we understand that. If that's what you have to do to survive, then we are not going to stand in your way or point the finger and say you are wrong because you're battling to survive and to look after yourselves and to have a more secure future. But here are the facts. If you stay in school for another two years and you get the qualifications that you can get, if you use that to get a job and we will support these kids with, you know, employability, time management, you know, kind of basic skills in IT and English. If we give you all of that support and you commit to it for another two or three years or five years or 10 years, if we can, your life will be immeasurably better 
you know, the likelihood is you will get a better paid job. It will be a more secure job. You will have better prospects for growing your income in the future. You will be able to look after your family, but you have to really focus for this next couple of years on studying and keeping, you know, the children focused on their education. And actually, huge proportion of parents, that's what they want. They don't want their kids to be working in the fields. They don't want their kids to have the same life they had. When we see parents taking their kids out of school, it's usually when that child has had more education than those parents ever had. So, you know, maybe the parents left school at 13. If their kid gets to 15, for them, they've really pushed to get that extra two years of education. The child can read and write, you know, it's already doing better. And that's what they've achieved. And we just aim to push that further, which is why we provide a a modest amount of support uh, to take some of the financial pressures away from those families to make it easier uh, for them to keep the kids in school and build a better life. And that's it. It's about removing these barriers. And sometimes it's the money and sometimes it's the awareness that actually life can be better. Um, Sometimes it's a cultural thing. It may be that, you know, the, the eldest daughter of the family has always become the kind of matriarch of the family because the parents have to go out and work. And it's just dealing with those. And so we have a big team of social workers and caseworkers, all Vietnamese, many from from poor backgrounds themselves, and they go out and they listen and they share their experience. And uh, in that way, we've done a decent job of of helping lots of kids to build a brighter future. And it'd be wonderful uh, to see that happen with all of the kids. Incredible, incredible work. Um, I just, I just saying that, I'm just thinking it's such a hard conversation. That's so difficult to ask anyone okay, you can alleviate a little bit of your poverty or pain or hardship now, but we're asking you to pause that for two to five years to make it better in the future. I mean, on paper, yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But in reality, that's so hard. So well done to you and your team because, yeah, it, it's it's exciting. And I know firsthand education is is the number one way to change someone's life. Like you've already mentioned, it's going to make a, just a massive impact on their uh, income levels on their quality of life, their family's quality of life. It's just, um, it is the biggest way that we can help people. And it's good to see in Vietnam, obviously overcoming massive challenges over the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, but now just rapidly um, moving forward with that. So before we move on to the final questions that I ask everyone, tell everyone who's still listening, hopefully everyone's got to this point, um, where can they find Saigon Children? How can they support? What can they do to help your mission and help these children? Well, very simply, go on to Google. Other search engines are available. Uh, and <laughs> Yeah, I think Lycos. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, ask Jeeves. Yeah, Ask Jeeves. I think that's making a comeback, actually. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Go on to your favourite search engine. Type in Saigon Children Donate and we'll be, I hope by now, the top listing. Um, click on a button, press another button, share your card details, share your bank details. Whether you can afford $5 or $5,000 or more, every single dollar makes such a massive difference in the lives of the kids that we work with. That's the one thing I would ask you to do is, and if you genuinely can't afford a dollar, hopefully you can mention us to somebody who might be able to uh, support us. So go on. Google us, make a donation. We have a, a monthly giving scheme, which is uh, in Vietnamese it's called Anti M, means brothers and sisters. And this is about building a movement of people who care about education, who care about 
children who are in a vulnerable position who really want to make a better life uh, for those around them. So if you, if you're, whether you're here in Vietnam and you love it, whether you wish you could be in Vietnam, uh, I won't mention the the C19 word, but if you're one of those people that's outside the country and can't travel back in right now, um, this is your opportunity to make a massive difference. So if you can donate to us, we will be extraordinarily grateful. And you can know that every single dollar will uh, make some child's life significantly happier and significantly better. Fantastic. So yeah, please do that if you can. I have one last question because I've worked for charities for a long time. For anyone who just heard you say that, and I know there'll be a significant number of people thinking right now, how do I know my money's going to get there? How do I know it's not wasted on your salary? And, you know, how do you answer that question? Um, so we have a few donors who contribute most of our uh, money for operations. So all of the staff salaries, you know, the teachers we employ, the social workers, the case uh, workers, all of those people that go in and, and, and work face to face with the children and the families to help them. Um, those salaries are broadly covered by a few big donors, including a, a big annual fundraiser that we have every September. Um, so actually, if you if you really feel particularly strongly uh, about where your money goes, you can just get in contact with us and say, I've given you $10. I want it to go on your autism work or I want it to go on your school building. And we will put all $10 or $5,000 uh, wherever you want it. So you can specify. And if you don't mind, then thank you very much for trusting us as a charity to use your money wisely to to do some good, because I promise you we will. Awesome. And if anyone is listening and they do donate, uh, do me a favor. If you can put in the notes that you heard this on 7 million bikes, it would be great for Saigon children to see maybe the impact that this interview has had. And if, uh, if someone is listening and gives $5,000, yeah, I, mean, I will be over the moon. It will, I will, it will make my year. So yeah. please let Saigon children's charity know that. Yeah, I just want to add, if, if anybody does go after listening to this and give, you know, $5,000 or, or more, I will personally deliver a signed, framed certificate of appreciation to your house or your office, uh, and we can make a great big thing of it if you want. I mean, if you choose to be anonymous, don't worry, we can respect that too. But I'm very happy to uh, come over on my scooter and, and thank you personally for, for something like that, because it would make a immeasurable difference. You don't drive on me back. I don't drive a Maybach. No, I have I have a, a scooter and I, I don't even have a good one. I have a, for those of you who know, it's a SYM, a SIM. It's not a Honda. It's not, it's not a Yamaha. It's not a brand that you can easily get fixed. It is just about the cheapest thing that I could find that fits me. Well, that's a perfect segue. So the, the first question I'm going to ask in, the, uh, in our wrap-up questions is, um, so Saigon has over 7 million bikes, hence the name. And actually in Vietnam has over 45 million bikes for a population of 92 million. That's registered bikes, 45 million. Incredible. So, and as we know, anyone who lives here, uh, driving is very precarious and road rules are more of an option than a, in many other countries. What's, what's the most important unwritten road rule for you? Ooh, I, I guess it would be assume nothing expect everything that's that's great advice you might be you know on a dual carriageway you think you're sailing along safely and suddenly you find yourself inexplicably on a roundabout with a, a guy selling lottery tickets from his wheelchair going the wrong way around the roundabout and you have to uh, you know adapt your path for that and yeah assume assume nothing expect everything no yeah that's 
great advice you put it succinctly. And that is, that is how I drive. You, you're just constantly scanning the road going, what could happen right now? I have to be aware of everything that's going on right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I remember sitting uh, a kind of computer-based hazard perception driving test in the UK. And uh, you had to kind of see the hazards emerging and you had to press on the screen to say when you thought something could be dangerous or become dangerous. And I think I couldn't take that test now because, you know, I'd be going, well, hang on, there's a building there and someone could throw something from a balcony to the street. You know, there's a guy walking along the thing. He could just decide to turn around whilst carrying, you know, a 15 foot uh, pole and, and take out most of the passing traffic, you know really is exciting. I absolutely love driving in the city because it is never boring. It is always interesting. And frankly, it's always quite funny. Yeah. For anyone who lives here or has lived here, you obviously can relate and know exactly what we're talking about. For anyone who who hasn't had the fortune to be here, it is so insane that there's a six-lane highway that I drive down, the Hanoi Highway. People cross the road, like walk across a six-lane highway. Yeah. Like children, like school children in uniforms. And you're like, this was in the UK or the West and you were going down a highway and someone was crossing the road. Your head would explode. Yeah. And what I love is that, you know, one of the kind of unwritten rules here is that if you are crossing a road, whether it's a small street or a six lane highway, you're kind of expected not to run. If you run, you're kind of unpredictable and people can't see you and they can't adjust to go around you. So you have to kind of saunter out mm. like you're very relaxed and just kind of meander across the road. And that really does take some inner steel to master that the first few times. Oh, you can see videos on YouTube of people doing it. If you, if you don't live here and don't know what we're talking about, go on YouTube. You see plenty of videos and you have the right of way, basically, if you're the one that's walking. Yeah. It's crazy. Right now, um, I ask this of all of my um, foreigners that come on the show. Can you speak Vietnamese? I'll uh, take that as I know. But the pause <laughs> <laughs> just totally said, oh, you'll say the same as everyone else. I tried. It's too difficult. I can speak a tiny bit. I am still learning. I am still learning. I'm, I'm now on my third teacher. It's going better than it's ever gone before. I can read. I have to sign a lot of documents. I've learned to read a decent amount of Vietnamese. I cannot pronounce the Vietnamese words well enough uh, to say stuff without my entire team falling about laughing and throwing things at me. So I am slightly discouraged. But yeah. Yeah, like you say, it's the old one. I'm still trying. Yeah. Um, so what's your most useful Vietnamese phrase? Um, not so much a phrase as much as a, a word, uh, sin loi, which is, uh, sorry. Uh, and that's usually because I'm inept and I, I struggle to, to get through life effectively and without causing a nuisance. Um, and I think also it's partly the English. Oh, well, I'm terribly sorry. You know, you, you sort of, like you said, you're going down a six lane highway and suddenly a truck does a U-turn, you kind of crash into the side of them. And I instantly think, Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, sin loi for me. I, I say that a lot. And I find with a smile, they kind of look at you like, you poor foreign idiot. We will go out of our way to look after you and be kind to you because, you know, you obviously need our support. <laughs> well, this is only episode three and you're the second out of three episodes to give the answer sin loi. So it's obviously <laughs> a common one for uh, us foreigners. Um, what's your favourite sunset spot in Vietnam? Oh... To be honest, actually, I enjoy so many 
sunsets on Twitter. But I would say Vietnamese Twitter is is a great place to enjoy a sunset. So it's a bit less exclusive to say Twitter. Uh, I guess probably from my apartment. I'm out in in District Seven. Very lucky that uh, we don't have another building in our direct view, so we get some good sunsets uh, from our apartment. And I especially appreciate them because my first couple of years living in uh, Vietnam uh, also had a balcony. And one meter, literally one meter away from the balcony was the next building. Uh, And so it used to be that if you were on the balcony, you could lean out, look straight up, you could see a small strip of blue sky. And I lived there for a couple of years. And so moving into a place where there wasn't a wall in front has kind of brought me a lot of joy. So that's probably where I enjoy the most sunsets. Nice. Um, now, would you rather live in Vietnam now with all the, the mud cons and everything we enjoy or 20 years ago when it was a lot sl- sleepier, I would imagine, and quieter? Mm. If I had been a rich person in life, I would love to have been here 20 years ago and bought an apartment in District 1 because by now, you know, I and, and all of my future offspring would probably have retired. Um, but no regrets. I, I love being here right now. Uh, it just feels like anything is possible uh, across all of Vietnam. And the people are just so positive for the future right now that it feels pretty special. Cool. And last question, and for you, what's missing from Vietnam? (laughs) Coronavirus? Yeah, that's a good answer. That's a great answer. (laughs) (laughs) Next level, yeah. It's unbelievable, right? Like I was just saying yesterday, like, we just don't have coronavirus here. It's insane. Yeah, I, 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 I you can edit all this out because we didn't want to talk about the the, the c word. But um, yeah, coming from the UK, where things are, where in fact England, more specifically, where it's even worse than the rest of the UK, to watch what my family and my friends are going through, and the interminable lockdowns, and the economic collapse, and all of these catastrophic things, and to be sat here in Vietnam, where you know what, you want to go out to the pub and see some cool Scottish guy doing, uh, you know, a bit of stand-up and a bit of singing. Uh, you know, that's a real treat. That's a real treat. So that's my real answer no, no, uh, to your answer. question. We'll keep yeah. that in. We won't edit it. It's <laughs> the end of the podcast. We can have one mention of COVID. That's okay. Well, look, thank you very much, Damien. I've been looking forward to this. Um, really interesting to talk more about Saigon Children's work. Um, I think they do incredible stuff. And I hope people listening can learn more about what it's like, the realities of of charities in Vietnam and some of the barriers and uh, how to overcome them. So I hope people found that interesting. If you can, go and donate. And um, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a joy. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. If you've made it this far, please uh, go on the Facebook page if you haven't already. Give it a like. Um, Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere basically that you can listen to podcasts, you will find a Vietnam podcast. And also, if you uh, are inclined, please um, become a Patreon supporter. Click on the link in the show notes. And um, you can see the different levels of membership there. It costs a lot of time to make a podcast and it does cost a little bit of money as well. It's always been free and it will always be free, but any support would be much appreciated as well. So thank you very much. And I hope you are enjoying um, 7 Million Bites, a Vietnam podcast.
I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're like me, you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public Wi-Fi. This opens you up to digital snoopers. It's a massive problem. It can be your internet service provider, or you know who, looking at what you do online, or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info, or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease, and I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers. <laughs>